I'm Corey Lynn Green, and this is Doug Fern's Take on Music Recording. Hello, Doug. Hi, Corey. The last time we were together, we discussed studio technology for musicians. Doug Fern took the time to ask me questions about my experience working in a music studio for the first time. We covered a lot of the basics about what I had learned. I thought it would be nice to turn those questions around and find out how Doug came into this knowledge of studio recording technology and to dig a little into his history surrounding the music business. So I have some questions for you, Doug, that I think people will be interested in, um, and I'm hoping we get both some technology questions in and some more personal questions about how you ended up uh, with your own studio recording equipment and studio. I'm curious what your first memory around having interest in sound recording is. I think I was fascinated by it because of my exposure with my father with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Even though I was not allowed to be at any of the recording sessions, they would do a couple times a year television performances uh, on one of the local Philadelphia stations. It's not quite the same as recording, but it's, it's, there's a lot of similarities. And I was allowed to be there for that. And I was just fascinated by all the equipment and the microphones and uh, all the stuff that was set up. But I don't think I really thought of myself as experimenting with recording until, I guess, when I was maybe 13, I discovered this tape recorder that somebody had thrown out, a home tape recorder, not a professional recorder. And I brought it home and fixed it up, made it work. And that was the beginning of my fascination with recorded sound. I didn't have any music to record at that time, but you know, I, I learned that technology. And then it was at my high school, which had its own FM broadcast station, which is very unusual. They had professional equipment. They had Ampex tape machines and, you know, RCA mics and stuff. So it gave me an opportunity to actually do some real recording. First experience trying to record the school orchestra was just a disaster. It just sounded so awful. And I just thought, I'm, no, I'm never going to figure out how to do this until I realized that the primary problem was, you know, the school's cinder block auditorium with nothing in it, wooden seats, no padding, no carpeting, nothing. The room was just awful sounding. And as I experimented with how can I place mics to pick up this orchestra that doesn't pick up so much of the room that it you know, sort of ruins the experience, I think that's how I really got into it. And then I had friends in high school who were in bands, they wrote some of their own songs, but mostly they were doing cover versions of songs that they liked, Rolling Stones, Beach Boys, whatever, you know, all kinds of stuff. So they asked me if if I would record their band. And my music exposure up to that point didn't include much popular music at all. I was totally unfamiliar with the songs that they were going to be performing. And, I, and they gave me records of, you know, the, the real performers doing this. And I said, I don't know if I can do this. This is just like 
I don't understand this at all. And they said, well, let's just give it a try. And we did. And in one day, I learned so much. <laughs> and it's kind of ironic because a lot of the techniques that I sort of figured out on the fly that day are the things I've been doing ever since. Like the single ribbon mic in front of the drums. Right. You know, things like that. So that was my introduction, and that, that really got me interested in doing it. And by that point, I concluded that that's what I wanted to do. You had a really clear vision at a, a really young age. I wonder back then if orchestra music really moved you. Was the music the thing that moved you, or was the technology itself the thing that you found yourself really curious about? Well, it's always been this way. They're equal. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, if anything, over the years, I've come to see the technology is just tools you have to use. You know, so my focus has over the years shifted more to, on the music rather than on the technology, because I've, I've got that figured out. I know what I, what I need to do to get what I want. And although, you know, I'm always trying new things, it, it may have started out equal, but it's become much more of a focus on the music. When you were learning this technology um, and recording more popular albums or sounds with your friends, did you have a favorite popular album back then? Uh, that's a good question. It's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this is kind of funny. Uh, I think the, the pop group that really caught my attention the first time was the Mamas and Papas. Yeah. You know? And ironically, decades later, I would end up working with both of the women from that. Oh, wow. That group, you know, in very minor situations. But, you know, it was, it was like there was just something about those recordings. They were so well done, and their producer – just knew exactly what to do to make them sound right. And I just thought, this is about as good as it gets. So that was my first introduction. And then uh, it was the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album that, that really convinced me there's nothing else I wanted to do. I think so many people would agree with that mm -hmm. choice. And um, uh, I know that recording something like that must have been a feat. And when I listen to the Beatles albums, even today, I don't know that it can really be beat in any way. So it's it just keeps growing and getting more interesting. And the more I learn about music, the more I understand how talented they, they really were. Oh, they were. And, you know, George Martin was just a brilliant producer. And uh, the studio, of course, Abbey Road was fabulous. Yes. And... Uh, I never got to work with George Martin, but I did work at Abbey in Abbey Road Studios wow. for, uh, for a project. So that was pretty interesting. I bet, yeah. and just historical, right? Yeah. Um, what was your first job in the music industry? Well, I don't know if it really qualifies as the music industry, but I started out in radio mm -hmm. um, because. I had that experience at my high school radio station. 
I had the first-class radio telephone license that you had to have to get a job as an engineer at a radio station back in those days. And I was looking for a summer job. And I went to all the Philadelphia radio stations because back then everybody took their vacations in the summer. And Mm -hmm. so they would hire people for the whole summer. And they always had trouble finding qualified people. So I, I went in and I just cold called all these stations, you know, <laughs> everything you shouldn't do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and But I got interviews at every one of them. And ultimately, every one of them uh, offered me the summer job. But I picked WPEN because every time I went to one of these places to, to apply for the job, I said, can you give me a tour? You know, because I wanted to see the place. Yes. I had never really been in another radio station. It's my high school station, you know, at that point. So I just decided WPEN was it because it was old-time radio, you know, with 11 studios and wow. and one giant studio that took up the whole first floor, which originally was used for a teenage dance afternoon program, which eventually evolved into American Bandstand. So everything was happening live on live. the air of these studios. Yeah. You know, one of the studios upstairs was all set up with a grand piano and an organ and room for lots of musicians, because back in those days, you did a lot of live music on the radio. I love that. Yeah, and it was just so much fun. I just really enjoyed it. Now, it had changed a lot by the time I got there, but it was still a fascinating experience. And I ended up being there for several years because they they kept trying to talk me into a, a full-time job. And I kept saying, no, I'm in high school. <laughs> you know. But eventually, you know, at that point, I realized I knew what I wanted to do. I knew... The only way I was going to accomplish that would be to make enough money to buy the equipment to to build a studio. And, you know, back then the equipment was incredibly expensive. There was no sort of entry level or semi-pro stuff. Uh, So I I had to find a way to make that money. And the radio station paid very, very well. And I figured this is a great situation where I can learn a lot more, I enjoy what I'm doing here, because back then the engineers ran the programming, you know, basically. Okay, so you got to choose what was going to be played. Well, not that. Okay. That was all, there was a record librarian that picked, the the disc jockeys didn't get to choose it either. Okay. Which is sort of the same way it is today, only a computer chooses it, but it's the same process. But you ran the turntables, you ran the tape machines, you played the commercials, Basically, all the guy on the other side in the studio, you know, you're in the control room, the guy in the studio talked. Mm. You turned on his mic and pointed to him when it was time for him to talk. It was really good practice for interacting with people in a music recording situation because you had to, it's a cooperative thing, you know, you had to work together. So I, you know, sort of learned how to do that pretty well from that experience. And it gave me the money to to build a studio. Did you have a mentor when you were working there, someone who was encouraging you to go further, or were you really self-sufficient in that way and knew what you wanted and knew how to get there? 
No, I didn't have anybody. And, it, you know, I was the first engineer, new engineer they had there since 1947. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so here I am, 17 years old, you know. Wow. And working with all these old guys, including guys that were there when the station went on the air in the 1920s. And, you know, they knew so much about how this whole thing, they invented radio, basically. Right. But I could not get them to talk. It was just uh, I was so frustrated because I really wanted to know about what that was like back then. What was it like when nobody had ever done this before and you had yes. to figure out how to make it work, you know? So, but I, I had a really hard time getting any information. I've always been best just learning on my own. And I considered at one point, you know, doing, if I could get it, getting like an internship at a, at a big studio and learning there. But... I came to the conclusion that I could probably learn faster on my own because it's one thing when somebody's there telling you this is how we do it. It's another when you say, I wonder if this will work. Yeah, you learn a lot quicker. <laughs> yeah, for me, that's that's the way I learned. The path was obvious to me. I mean, I never even gave it any real conscious thought. It just seemed inevitable. This is what I was going to do. How long did you work for the station before you started to build your first studio? Oh, almost right away. But the problem was back then you had to be 21 to do anything. Okay. You couldn't start a business. You couldn't rent an apartment. Wow. Um, you couldn't vote. You know, it's like you could really you were a kid until you were 21. You weren't allowed to do any of that stuff. So I did a lot of recording on location, all kinds of stuff. Not really in business, but getting paid for it a little bit mm -hmm. here and there. Uh, but that was all the lead up to when I was 21, when I could start a real company and rent the space for my first studio. So you were just biding your time, and then you turned 21, and <laughs> you did it. I, yeah, well, I had everything lined up so that you know, my birthday was in March, April 3rd. The, co the company was incorporated. I had already lined up the building and told them, you know, rent starts in April. So I was ready to go. What was your first big job at that studio? Well, you know, it started out really small because I wasn't really well equipped. The place wasn't totally done. And so I was just doing things with some, you know, some of the things with the kids in, that I worked with in, in high school. They would come in and we would just experiment. I wasn't charging them for the time or anything. But to be competitive, I just needed so much equipment that, you know, it was just so hard for me. I was making a lot of money and I lived very, very frugally. So I just put it all into that facility. You know, what was the first big job? I don't even remember, mm -hmm. to tell you the truth. It was just work, and you were going to do it. And like so many people starting out in this industry, I do think it takes time to build that equipment, and there's a cost to it, so little by little. And you're learning all along that way, right? I mean, with every mistake you make or every new piece right. of equipment that makes things better. Well, when I started out, I had two two-track tape machines, and, th and that was it, which really limits what you can do. 
but I needed a multi-track machine. But at that point, four-track recording was already obsolescent, and everybody had moved to eight-track. Most studios had moved to eight-track recording. But I couldn't afford that machine, so I had to find a way to get a four-track machine. And uh, my girlfriend at the time's mother, uh, I spent a lot of time at their house. She really liked feeding me and <laughs> talking to me. And, you know, I was telling her about this dilemma that I had, and she says, well, I'll lend you the money. And I thought, no, I, I can't do that. You know, she was a single mom and uh, worked all the time, and I just would feel terrible about taking $5,000 from, yeah. from her to, to buy a tape machine. So the matter was like unsettled in my mind until one day I walk in there and she hands me a check for $5,000. Wow. You know, which I paid back pretty quickly, but you know, it was the important step that I needed to get that four-track machine, which made the, the studio viable. But all the rest of the that was the only new piece of gear I had, I think. Everything, wow. well, some mics were new. It was all stuff I had scrounged. Among that were all these old, mostly RCA microphone preamplifiers that were all tubes from the 30s and 40s, most of them. You know, I couldn't wait to get rid of them. But when I finally got a big solid-state console, I just said, what happened to this sound? It just does not sound right to me anymore. And, you know, I sort of reluctantly dragged into the, the solid state era of mm -hmm. equipment, but I never liked it, you know, which, you know, comes into the picture much later. It can come into the picture right now as my next question is, um, how did this job evolve you into wanting to create your own sound recording equipment? So some of the answer was there. How did you do it? There's a lot of interim steps here, but okay. to jump ahead to this, I have been doing location recording and mostly classical or choral stuff or chamber orchestras or things like that. And I just really wasn't happy with the sound of it. And I thought, what is it about those old recordings that sounded so much better to me? And I came to the realization it was those vacuum tube mic preamps by that point, they were, you know, ancient history. You couldn't even find one, I don't think. So I decided, well, maybe I'll build one. And it was mainly for my own use. I sort of had in the back of my mind that it could be a product. It really wasn't my goal at that stage. Several things led up to me deciding that maybe this would be a business. Mm. Took me a while to develop this mic preamp to the point where I liked it, which is still the basis of all the mic preamps we made. I mean, that design that I did in the early 90s has not changed at all. And designed for the way I hear things. Mm. And you're hearing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And some friends of mine in the studio business in Philadelphia area and beyond who were curious about what I was doing and wanted to try out this mic preamp. And I lent it to a couple people, and they didn't want to give it back. Mm. So I thought, okay, maybe there's a market here for this. So that, that was the beginning of that. And it was also sort of an incentive because I had been working so long in this abstract area of recording 
where there's not really a tangible product. I mean, eventually there there might be a, an album or a CD, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the same. It was uh, I I was sort of fascinated by the idea of building stuff, and it was uh, you know completed, tested, shipped out to somebody. There was just something about that process that was like a new direction for me that appealed to me. Seems like it would take a certain kind of brain, too. Like, I know that you uh, love technology, and I know that you could take a radio apart and put it back together when you were young, and I know that you're a pilot. Do you think that it takes a certain kind of thinker to um, have the ability to create something like this and understand the technology? Or was it just a matter of understanding the old equipment and finding a way to put it back together and create something new? Well... I mean, all technology is just a tool, yeah. you know? And for me, I needed that tool. Yeah. And just from my experience, uh, you know, through my life up to that point, I understood how all that stuff worked. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, in my younger years, I was, like, really fascinated by it. And to some extent, I still am. But to me, it was it was just part of what I did. A means to an end. Yeah. But, I mean, I understood it in a way that didn't require a whole lot of effort, which isn't to say developing a product like that is easy. But I think the important thing in any kind of design, no matter what it is you're designing, you could be designing a song, you know, for that matter. Mm -hmm. You have to have a sense of what the end product you want is before you start, or you know, which may change along the way as you explore it. But I've always started with, what do I want this to do? You know, and then how do I make it do that? Mm. I mean, I think back in the early days of personal computers, you know, even before like the IBM PC, which is the basis of most mm-hmm. of the computers everybody uses, with the Apple computers that wouldn't do anything unless you wrote a program to make it do that. Mm-hmm. And that was not like the most fascinating thing in the world to me, but I saw applications that I could use it to do. But what I would do, which is probably, I don't know how programmers work, but I would envision using the program and saying, what do I want the screen to look like? What questions does it need to ask and be answered? And mm. what input does it need? And then work backwards to what is the code to make that work. Yeah. And I think it's the same way I do any technology. When this began, this technology wasn't being used and you started to recreate it. Is Has it become more popular now in time using this kind of equipment? Are people now creating it? Or are you still standing alone um, in your company? Well, there have been a few uh, companies who were building vacuum tube gear. And when I started, there was not a whole lot of competition. I'm not sure what the statistics are today, but a few years ago, and I don't think it's changed much, it was over 90% of records used at least some vacuum tube equipment mm-hmm. in the recording of that album or single or song or whatever. It, you know, for the people that are making the music and recording it, Vacuum tubes have always been there. 
They never really went away. Okay. They sort of lost a lot of popularity in the 70s and 80s. And then I think in the 90s somewhat, and then in the 2000s, I think people started to really appreciate that difference. So I just happened to be there you know, at mm-hmm. the right time when people suddenly said, this really sounds good, you know. Yeah. I want that. So there are a few more manufacturers that make vacuum tube-based equipment now. And, you know, I know all of them. They're all my friends because <laughs> right. it's a really tiny business. Sure. You know, and who else do we have to talk to except each other because right. nobody else would have That's a right. clue about what we were talking about. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed that part of it. Well, since I'm a creative artist and not so much interested in the technology of things, although that is changing as I get to know you more, one thing that I think is special about your equipment is it's aesthetically really different than other equipment I've seen. Um, will you talk a little bit about what it looks like and how you made the decision to make it look that way? Well, um, I think the full explanation of that goes back to when I was 14 with my first business. And a friend that I met through amateur radio had a printing press in his basement that he had used. I mean, he, was, he was a hobbyist who like had a million hobbies, mm-hmm. and this was just one of them. And I was always fascinated by that. And one day he says, do you want it? And he gave me this printing press and all these probably a dozen typefaces and, you know, metal tape. You had metal type you had to hand set. And I came to realize at that point that, yeah, you could just set the type and print something and, you know, looks okay. Or you could put a little more effort into it and make it look nice, mm-hmm. you know, by picking the right fonts and doing things with that composition to make it look better. And I think that's where I started to develop sort of a uh, a sense of what looks good. Mm-hmm. You know, plus looking at other equipment and saying, that's a nice design. Yeah. It's functional. Everything you need is logical. It looks like it would be easy to use. And it's beautiful. It's well designed. And so that was sort of my inspiration. So I knew that the the, the products I designed had to have that same sort of aesthetic quality because... I thought, you know, if this is going to be the best stuff in the world, which I hoped it would be, yes, um, it has to look the part. Yeah, you know, it, it shouldn't look junky. Yeah, and I know what it's like to be in a busy session and work with a box with a bunch of little knobs on it, half of which you know you've never had occasion to use. <laughs> you know, and and make it so that it's simple, intuitive, does what it, what the engineer wants. You get the sound you want real quickly and make it really difficult to make it sound bad. Yes. (laughs) Great. And when I first built a, you know, sort of finished prototype, I thought I'd better paint the front panel because all the prototypes up to that point had just been shiny aluminum panels, and that was not the look I wanted at Mm -hmm. all. So I went to the hardware store to buy some paint, spray paint, to paint this thing. <laughs> and my thought was to use this sort of blue-gray color paint. 
Yeah. And which I thought was a little out of the ordinary for studio equipment, most of which was either black, black. or aluminum. Right. But as I have this can of gray blue spray paint in my hand, there's like this c- color over off to my right of red. <laughs> and I said, I really like that color. <laughs> you know, I said, it may not be the final thing, but I'm going to paint this one with that red color. And people really responded to that because at that point, nobody that I know of had ever made a piece of equipment for a recording studio that was red. Yeah. I mean, there's some now since then. But sort of because I just like the look of it, Yeah. it also seemed to make the product attention-grabbing. Definitely. Those are the kinds of things that went into sort of the aesthetic part of the product design. Mm. So that's a lot about the technology and how you got here. I have a few more questions if you're willing to answer them. Sure. I'm curious a little bit as you're um, producing more music inside the studio itself, has being, has being um, producing inside the music industry changed how you listen to music? Do you enjoy listening to music? Is there a certain type of music that you're most attracted to? Um, or are you always kind of on when you're listening to music? Well, that's a good question. I think it's just my answer is probably going to make <laughs> some people mad. Uh, you know, in my younger days, I listened to everything. I studied it. I listened over and over and over to those albums that were so influential on me and, and most of those on everybody back in those mm-hmm. days. You know, at some point in your career, no matter what you're doing, I think, at least for me, you reach a point where studying stuff, reading about it, listening to what other people are doing, all that, just is no longer beneficial because by that point, you've gained as much from that as you're ever going to get. And the important thing at that stage is to just do it. You know, stop studying, go out and do it. Mm And so I would say by the early 1980s, I basically stopped listening to anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, do I not listen to any music ever? No, because every once in a while I just say, oh, it would be really nice to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll put it on, I'll listen to one song, and I'll say, okay, good. That that (laughs) does the job. Now I can get back to work. But what I do listen to is whatever I'm working on. And I that's all I listen to during the project is what I'm working on. To me, uh, I mean, this sounds awful <laughs> saying it, but I like the way my stuff sounds better than anything else. <laughs> you know, that's, what can you say? That's good. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the way it should be, I think. Yeah. Do you find yourself... Um, how do you keep yourself objective when you're listening for the things that you know need to change? Are they apparent right away? How many listens does it take for you to decide what needs to change or uh, where things need to grow or where you'd like to put certain sounds? How do you make those decisions? Is it just intuitive or is there a process that you go through uh, when you're listening? How long does it take? Now, I always tell people the music tells you what it needs. Yeah. And 
I really believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I listen to something, you know, for example, a demo of your song, yeah, a uh, new song, I'll just say, man, what would sound good in this? And it's usually just comes to me almost mm-hmm. instantly. Very intuitive. Yeah. But there are other times when we'll be well into that song and I'll say, oh, you know what? Why don't we try this? And unfortunately, because of the way you and I have to work with such limited time together, mm-hmm. we can't always explore those things as deeply as we'd like to. Right. That, to me, is the exciting part. I mean, I, I think throughout my recording career, I always wanted to experiment with something, you know. I used to tell people, and this was basically based on songs, but I think it has to do with recording as well. I would always say, play me something I haven't heard before. Yeah. You know, I really need that novelty. Yeah. So when I'm listening to something that we're working on, I will want to say, well, how far can we go with this? What, yes. what kind of thing can we do with this that still is perfectly serving the music yeah. and yet is something different? I love that approach. If someone is interested in becoming um, a recording artist or even on the producer side, what qualities are you looking for in someone who is bringing their artistry to you? Is it perfection? Is it a certain kind of voice? Is it a, a style of playing? Or does it just become like one big thing that you hear and you know? Yeah, I would say in almost every case, when somebody sends me something, and they don't do this as much as I used to get, yeah. <laughs> which you know is good and bad, but as soon as I hear it, I know mm. this this is some somebody I want to work with, or yeah, heard it before, or yeah, nice song, but you know it's still not not reaching me somehow. Mm-hmm. So it, it has to appeal to me personally. Yeah. You know, I just at this stage in my career, I don't want to work on stuff that I don't like. You know, I've done enough of that. Yeah. <laughs> now you get to choose. Right. And in making that choice, is there something you gravitate toward? Um, or it's just a sound and you know it? Yeah. Well, I think using you as an example, when I first heard the song that, that you recorded that was on YouTube, mm. it was like, Oh, this is a great song, and her, I love her voice. And this is something like I've never heard before. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a lot of components that I had heard before, but it was just this combination of things. And and maybe really critical too is I know how to make that sound a whole lot better. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, and I certainly don't fit into that perfect uh, pitch category. So it's really interesting to kind of get picked up and learn more about that. But also there's a quality to my voice that's unusual and and outside of the box. So it's something that someone with, um, you know, the right ear would have to hear and, and be interested in investing in, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of, and this is true with anybody I'm producing, mm-hmm. they have to be somebody that you know, has authority in their voice. It's like when they're telling you a story, you have to believe it. Yeah. You know, if 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 you can't believe their story, if it doesn't reach you emotionally, yes. it's not going to reach the listener either. Yeah. 
So it, it has to have that component as well. Yeah, that's a really important part. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I want to ask you one more question for people who are out there who are um, working at this in some way, and maybe they're working on the technology side, and they'd like to somehow get into the music industry, or maybe they're like me, and they're working on uh, being an artist or singing, or they'd like to record an album. Um, What advice could you give people on some first steps that they could take to get themselves moving, motivated, or at least aimed in the right direction for that to occur? Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, there's no formula for that. And one of the one of the key factors is you 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 have to have a range of talents. Mm-hmm. That can be, first of all, your musical talent. Mm-hmm. You know, your storytelling talent, mm-hmm. or whatever it is in your in in your music that's important to for people to relate to. I mean, yeah. music is an emotional thing. Yeah. So you got to make sure that you know you can reach the people. Some of the things we already talked about, like. You've got to have authority that that people pay attention. Mm -hmm. You demand attention. Yeah. And then you just really need to work on it, you know, because nobody's born knowing how to do this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, they have to learn. And it's a lot of work. Yeah. And it's a giant commitment. You know, we used to have a saying back in my studio when we'd get somebody in you know, we did a lot of record company business with big artists and stuff like that. But there's also all these people that thought that they could be, you know, the next big thing, which I think is a great attitude. You've got to start out, you know, with <laughs> yeah. ambition. Um, but, you know, it was obvious that their chances were very, very slim. And we used to always say, it's nice to have hobbies. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think... Uh, that sounds condescending, but the point is, I think for a lot of people, just doing music for fun is w- what they need and what they should be doing. Yeah, and I even had a realization like that recently, uh, which was, you know, we've made this amazing studio album, which we put out um, at the end of May, and it was an incredible experience. And then we're moving into the next steps of what we're going to do now. And I had this realization of now we're just going to get to make music. Now we're just going to go make another single and we're just going to go make another song. And nothing else has to happen except the enjoyment of creating that and doing our very best and putting the very best spin we have on those songs that we've written. Um, And it's so it's the creating itself, whether you end up. Uh, in the spotlight, or whether you're never heard, you have to have joy in it because it is a lot of work. So you better love what you're doing mm-hmm. and put your energy just toward the experience itself and stay in the present moment. Yeah, that's all true. I, I agree. And, you know, one other talent that you have to have, and this is this is where most people get tripped up, is you have to have the talent to make things happen, mm-hmm. which means... You know, you can't just record the thing and then wait for the world to discover you. Right. You know, and, and that's just one example. Yes. But there's a thousand of th- things like that. Like, who's going to back you up if mm-hmm. you're performing? You know? And, yes. You know, how are you going to get your music out to people? Who's who's going to carry this music? Is it going to be on a streaming service? Are you going to do a CD? What is, mm-hmm. What's the plan? And then make it happen. Yeah. And I've just seen so many people that were incredibly talented that I just loved their music. And I thought, 
They had everything going for them, but they lacked that one ability to make it happen. You know, people around them can certainly help facilitate that, but it really comes down to you, the artist. Mm-hmm. You know, and all this applies to somebody that wants to be an engineer or a producer. Yep. It's all the same process. It's just different angles on the same thing. Yeah. When I run into somebody that I can just see is driven and is ambitious and is talented and wants to do it, whether they want to be an engineer, a producer, a mixer, you know, a mastering engineer, whatever it is, you know it right away. Yeah. They're going to do it. Yeah. And you see a lot of people that say, great talent. I just don't know whether they're ever going to have, have any real success. Right. Wow. So true. Yeah. Yeah. So be motivated. <laughs> right. Well, you have to have that drive. It's just part of yep. what makes it work. Yep. And going back to the hobby aspect of it, some of the musicians I know that have the, the most fun making music have basically zero ambition. Right. <laughs> they just like making music. Yes. Either by themselves or with friends or whatever. And a lot of times I think they're just a lot happier. Yeah, that is okay. (laughs) Yeah, because they don't have that pressure on them. They're not putting that pressure on themselves. Yeah. And I think that's totally valid. Yeah. You know, make make the music you want to make the way you want to make it. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time. I really liked exploring both the history of where you're coming from and how you got involved in technology, but also the more personal side of how you ended up here and um, your history with music in general. Well, thanks. I think you asked great questions. Great. And we should tell people that we didn't prepare for the, Well, you did, but be, I had no idea. <laughs> he what had the no questions. idea what these questions were going to be. And so I kind of like the spontaneity of that too. Yeah, and, me too. And a lot of the questions I asked um, ended up being a little spontaneous as well as I listened to these great answers. So um, I think it's going to be a good value. It's a good value for me. So thanks a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you. This is Doug Fern's take on music recording. I'm Corey Lynn Green, and Doug will be back for the next episode. Stay tuned.